Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Oh, well, welcome to First Move. Fantastic to have you with us for another busy show. This hour where our minds are on meetings, if not necessarily on the meeting of minds. First up, the leaders of Russia and China beginning a second day of summit talks in Moscow. President Xi eager to to push his 12-point proposal to address the Ukraine war, largely dismissed, as you know, by the West as a non-starter. The United States suggesting this visit provides, quote, political cover for the conflict. Some extraordinary images there. We will discuss the second meeting, further emergency efforts to steady the U.S. regional bank First Republic, including possible direct investments. It shares up some 23% pre-market up, I said, after losing almost half their value on Monday. Reports say the big banks spearheaded by JP Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon are looking at boosting First Republic's capital. We're still in the world of banks saving each other, it seems. And U.S. officials also reportedly meeting to discuss how to ensure cash deposits above that $250,000 level until the financial turmoil passes, also if it's going to be needed. We've been asking that now for a week and what, whether that's what it's ultimately going to take to draw a line under this crisis. We'll discuss a little bit later on the show, too. For now, take a look at U.S. futures and European stocks building on Monday's gains with banks the outperformers. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen will also be speaking later on today to bank executives. Her prepared statement reiterates that outflows of funds, especially from these regional banks, have slowed. So fingers crossed that's enough. But as you can see, a strong performance, particularly across Europe. And one more meeting in our sights too, the US Fed's decision on Wednesday on what to do about raising interest rates. Most investors are now expecting a quarter point hike. But for me, it's more a question of will they hike versus should they? Inflation versus financial stability. It shouldn't be a compromise between those two things. But recent events suggest otherwise. We'll discuss later this hour with the former president of the New York Fed, Bill Dudley. But first, the Kremlin rolling out the red carpet. Russian President Vladimir Putin welcoming Chinese leader Xi Jinping as they hold a second day of talks in Moscow. The two leaders met for four hours on Monday too, referring to each other as dear friend. Nick Robertson joins us now to discuss this. Um, Nick, I think we have to talk about the visuals first and foremost. And we were just showing that long walk there in that imposing room down the red carpet to the meeting of these two leaders. A vitally important moment, I think, for President Putin to simply display President Xi in Moscow and the projection of the image that that implies, the support also it implies. The grandest of settings and interesting that Putin is just a couple of paces ahead of Xi arriving arriving to that central carpet in the middle. And of course, it is Putin that needs what Xi has on offer. He would take everything if there were weapons on offer too, but that 
as we know at the moment, is not something that's being discussed publicly, but certainly improving ties in the economy are on offer. And of course, that's what's going to help fund, uh, help Putin fund the war in Ukraine. Um, they're there to talk about a lot of things, business, the economy, all the things on President Putin's mind and Xi's mind. But yes, the setting of that hall, St. George's Hall in the Kremlin Palace, that palace has over 700 rooms and it has five great halls. St. George's, St. George's that they met in there is the largest. So really showcasing for the Chinese public who are going to see this as well, just what Russia has to offer. You know, that hall is so big, you can, you can seat 800 people in there. You can hold a banquet for 600 people in there. So there's a lot of symbolism, as you say, but it's the substance that Putin's going to want to get to in their meetings. Uh, we know that Xi Jinping is accompanied by his top foreign policy advisor, Wang Yi, also by his foreign minister as well. Putin has touted uh, the strength of business relationship uh, between the two countries in his letter to the Chinese people, $175 billion worth of trade achieved in 20. An aim of uh, $200 billion worth of trade by 2024, which Putin says will perhaps be achieved this year. And it is, and I say it again, it may not be weapons on offer here, at least publicly, but it is the money that Putin can get in business deals that will help fund the war. But she, of course, looking for bargains, as he always does when he comes to Moscow, when Putin needs a friend. Yes, there's leverage there. It's funny, those images, as we were saying, that the projection of power, I think, and influence, but also isolation in many respects to those gentlemen in that enormous room, which I think goes to your point, too, about who else is being messaged to at this moment, not just the relationship between these two, how far it extends, what it means if these two individuals ever refer to the conflict in Ukraine as, as a war indeed, um, but the messaging elsewhere in the world, too. Yeah, two autocrats here who both say that they uphold the, the, the rule of international law, that they are good and upstanding citizens and holders of the, uh, two of the five permanent security seats at the UN Security Council. So they would have the world believe that their vision of the future, a vision where autocracies, where, uh, you know, President Xi has said that he thinks President Putin will get elected again next year. This is already extending into the third decade of leadership for President Putin, where President Xi is arriving just uh, 11, 10, 11 days after he was given a third term as president of China. These are not men who believe in the value of democracy, the, but they say they uphold the, the values of international law, which were built uh, coming out pretty much of the Second World War on the values of, on, on the values of democracy. So this is, this is a rebuff. It's a challenge. It's, it's, a, it's, it's, it's a visual statement to the West, to NATO, to the United States, to other members of the UN Security Council, United States, UK, France. This is a challenge to their world order and their view. And this is really where China in particular sees the importance of the relationship with Putin and sees a future of the world in its mold. And it's beginning to reach out diplomatically more and more around the world. We've seen in the Gulf recently um, being, becoming broker between Saudi Arabia and Iran. China's goals and limits are, are extensive, and this is part of that picture. Yes, she's their term, the global diplomat, it seems, mm. um, with some degree of potency. Nick Robertson, thank you so much for that. Now, as talks between China and Russia resume in Moscow, efforts are underway to organise a call between President Xi 
and Ukraine's President Zelensky, that according to an official in Kyiv. Also taking place, the Japanese Prime Minister has arrived in Ukraine for separate discussions. Ivan Watson joins us now from Kyiv. Uh, Ivan, I think the divisions in Northeast Asia and their views on this conflict are dramatically highlighted by what's taking place across the two nations. But what more do we know about talks behind the scenes to organise that call between President Xi and President Zelensky? Right. Well, uh, since the Russian invasion of this country more than a year ago, there has not been any direct communication with the Ukrainian president and the Chinese leader, even though Beijing claims that it is neutral in this conflict, even though Xi Jinping is currently embracing Vladimir Putin, the Russian president, uh, a suspected war criminal, according to the International Criminal Court as we speak. Uh, so there have been some contacts at lower levels. For example, the Ukrainian foreign minister spoke with his Chinese counterpart by phone uh, last week. Uh, but the Ukrainians are saying they're still kind of in discussions to try to arrange some kind of a, of a direct communication between between the Chinese and Ukrainian leaders, which then raises the question, if China does want to promote peace and some kind of dialogue in this uh, horrific war that is now underway, how is it going to do that if Xi Jinping has never had any communication with the leader of one of the two warring parties here? It, it, it does raise some serious questions. Yeah. Ivan Watson, thank you so much for that there. Now, Washington remains skeptical of the meeting between Presidents and Xi, Putin and Xi, saying there's little evidence that the talks could yield positive developments for Ukraine. Jeremy Diamond is at the White House for us. Jeremy, in terms of uh, positive developments, the fear actually is that talk of a ceasefire perhaps just buys time for Russia to consolidate their position and push on. So what might on the surface appear to be a positive development certainly isn't, at least from the perspective of the West. Uh, yeah, that's exactly right. The notion of China uh, re reviving uh, propo its proposals for a ceasefire uh, in the war uh, between Russia and Ukraine is, is certainly one of the things that U.S. officials have really honed in on in the last 24 hours. You have heard them uh, raising uh, serious concerns about that possibility because of what you just said, that essentially it would give Russia an opportunity to uh, rearm and regroup and then eventually restart the war uh, on its own terms. Uh, and uh, t Secretary of State Tony Blinken uh, yesterday, in fact, compared it to uh, a tactic, a Russian tactic uh, that would effectively be supported by China, even if it were China uh, that were to actually propose this uh, ceasefire. Uh, U.S. officials have also expressed concerns uh, about the timing of China's visit, noting that uh, Xi Jinping is in Moscow uh, just days after the International Criminal Court issued an arrest warrant for Vladimir Putin over war crimes charges. Uh, the Secretary of State saying that that is essentially providing diplomatic cover uh, to the Russians uh, for Russia to continue uh, carrying out other war crimes. Now, one other thing that U.S. officials are closely watching out of these meetings between the Russian president and the Chinese president is this possibility that U.S. officials have said China is considering uh, providing lethal weapons uh, to uh, Russia. So far, uh, U.S. officials have said that they have seen no signs that that decision has been made by the Chinese, but they have said that it is certainly uh, something that the Chinese have not yet taken off the table. And 
so they are closely watching uh, for these additional meetings today between the two leaders to see whether or not that is something that is explored. In the meantime, the U.S. has provided additional weaponry to Ukraine, $350 million package approved just yesterday that includes a lot of the kinds of ammunitions that the Ukrainians would need for their anticipated counteroffensive this spring. And uh, Jeremy, your point about timing, I think, perfectly apt in light of uh, perhaps other challenges, I'll call them that, the United States certainly isn't, but trying to play down the consequences and the impact of a potential visit by the president of Taiwan to the United States and trying to send the message really, I think, to the Chinese that um, there's no president being set here and there's nothing really to see. Uh, yeah, that, that's exactly right. U.S. officials have said that they have provided the Chinese with uh, a history of uh, previous Taiwanese presidents visiting uh, the United States and traveling abroad a, a, as part of an effort there. And it's important to note that the U.S. Uh, is working on uh, trying to improve dialogue with the Chinese. Uh, yesterday, the National Security Council spokesman John Kirby floated the possibility of uh, the Treasury Secretary and the Commerce Secretary visiting Beijing uh, soon. And U.S. officials have also said that they intend to have President Biden and President Xi get on the phone uh, at some point. That call hasn't been scheduled yet, but they do hope that that is something that can happen in the coming months. And also looking to reestablish those military to military communications that U.S. officials say are so crucial to avoiding miscalculations, particularly in the Indo-Pacific. Mm, it's a diplomatic dance, but I, I feel like there's plenty of stubbed toes already, to say the least. Jeremy That's Dion. a good way to put it. <laughs> Thank you so much for that. Okay, shares of regional bank First Republic Bank have bounced back sharply after hitting a fresh low during Monday's trading session. Eleven banks, if you remember, already rushed to the aid of the struggling bank. And now there's reports it is also looking for a further financial lifeline. Christine Romans joins us now. Uh, this is an interesting one. I was looking at the data for the deposit outflows, the suspected deposit outflows of, of this bank, and it dwarfs the amount of money that these big banks effectively deposit dumped into First Republic. So now they're talking about perhaps shoring up the capital position of the bank. Yeah, and it's, you know, the next steps for First mm. Republic will be fascinating to watch. And there will be next steps. The end uh, of the support for First Republic was not just that $30 billion uh, invested into the bank or, or deposited into the bank last week by the other big banks. But we also know it's also sought a lifeline from J.P. Morgan even before its most recent turmoil. And, um, you know, we don't know who has tapped, you know, that emergency lending facility or by how much from each of these individual banks for obvious reasons. But we know that there are efforts underway to shore up First Republic Bank. Bouncing this morning, bouncing off record lows as it starts to, you know, get advice from its bankers about what to do next and um, whether it can, um, you know, include another capital raise here. So First Republic, the story hasn't been, the sentence has not been, you know, written to the period at the end of that sentence quite uh, yet there. And the rest of the, the banking regional bank stocks are bouncing back here today as well. I feel as though there's just this sense of stabilization overall here. And one of the reasons this morning is because you've got the Treasury Secretary who will be speaking in 45 minutes uh, to a banking group in Washington. And she's, she has said that, look, what we have done so far has been successful. Our intervention was necessary to protect the broader U.S. banking system. And similar actions could be warranted 
if smaller institutions suffer deposit runs that pose the risk of contagion. And I, I think investors wanted to hear that explicitly, that if there is another problem at a little bank that we don't see right now, that the Fed will, uh, or the Treasury will be there um, for those depositors again. You know, a lot of discussion about what is exactly systemically important. There are small banks that, that aren't. But if you have this fear factor in the psychology right now, then do they become a little more uh, critical than maybe they would have been a few weeks ago? We'll yeah, see. It, it goes back to the conversation we've been having now, it seems, daily, which is um, we seem to be in a situation where, and you've said it there with what the Treasury Secretary is saying, that there's as close as they can get to an explicit guarantee without making it explicit, that if a bank now gets into trouble, those uninsured depositors are going to be protected. The question is, is this going to be enough? And I think there's, a, there's also a question of legally they can do that. What authorities do they have? Is this something that is um, co- the Congress needs to address? You know, what exactly I think are the legal authorities and the powers that the, the FDIC and the Treasury have in a situation like this? Uh, and so I think all of that is sort of under consideration here. Words at the moment rather than Congress acting and the hope that that's enough to, um, to exactly. bolster confidence. Yeah. Um, Christine? Thank you so much for that. All right, straight ahead. Prudent to pause or will the Fed push on with rate rises? We'll discuss with the former New York Fed President Bill Dudley after this. Welcome back to First Move. It's a high-stakes balancing act for the Federal Reserve as policymakers weigh their next move in the battle to tame inflation. Though there are a few options on the table. Will they hold back for more rate rises because of the stress in the banking sector? Will they follow the European Central Bank's footsteps and raise rates by half a percentage point? Or will they go with a more modest quarter-point hike? Among other things, decision-makers at the Fed are also watching how regional American banks are doing amid troubles with First Republic Bank and beyond. Much to discuss. Joining us now is Bill Dudley, who served as president of the New York Federal Reserve from 2009 to 2018. He is also on the board of directors at UBS. I will mention that because that means we don't talk about that, Bill. The good news is, and welcome to the show, we have plenty of other things to discuss. Um, Let's cut to the chase here. Just your assessment of what we're seeing across the financial sector in the United States and whether you believe ultimately Congress and policymakers can get away without providing an explicit backstop to uninsured deposits? Well, that remains to be seen, but this is very different than the great financial crisis. Uh, This is really about banks uh, with large bases of uninsured deposits who've taken on interest rate risk. It's very well known, well defined. Uh, during the great financial crisis, that was much more about, you know, the underlying uh, housing boom and bust, uh, and that putting a lot of stress on the banking system. And that was exacerbated by the fact that it was very hard to value a lot of the uh, complex uh, assets that banks and other financial intermediaries held. I think this situation is much more manageable than the great financial crisis, and I think it's going to have much less damage to the U.S. economy. Uh, but the Fed's in a bit of a bind. Uh, on one hand. Uh, they should keep tightening because inflation is still too high, uh, labor market's too tight. On the other hand, uh, they want to basically make sure that they don't do anything that exacerbates the stress in the banking system. And so that argues for, for pausing. So I think you know, it's a very close call what they're going to do uh, tomorrow. And, I, and there's not really a right solution. They could pause and signal that further rate hikes are likely once this situation gets stabilized, or they could hike 25 basis points 
and make it very clear that they're very uh, focused on what's going on in the banking system. Either yeah, option is a completely reasonable one. I was about to say, just on the surface, tightening into a sort of financial stability problem, let's call it that, created by tightening, um, sort of sounds problematic, at least on the surface. Um, but what would you be recommending? Just a pause, perhaps? Well, pausing also yeah. is also a little problematic because it's sort of scary. Like, what does the Fed know uh, that we don't know? They're pausing. They must be really scared about what's going on in the financial system. So I don't think there's a a right answer. I mean, if I were, I, I, I don't really think it matters as much as people think about what, what they do tomorrow. I think what matters is can they stabilize the banking system so they can free up uh, their, their, their ability to tackle inflation. I mean, at the end of the day, they still have an inflation problem. So the right thing to do is broaden out your liquidity support, uh, have a firm backstop for the banking system. Banking system settles down. That allows you then to go back to taming inflation. I mean, part of the calculation that they have to make here is how much damage has been, is being, will be done by what we've seen, whether that's in lending behaviour, particularly for some of these regional banks, or consumer behaviour too. Can you, and I know it's sort of finger in the wind, can you predict at this moment how significant or insignificant, um, I'll give you that option too, you think the growth impact will be from this? Because that's critical too. Let's imagine that this whole thing comes down over the next couple of weeks. If that's the case, that's certainly what the Fed's goal is. If that's the case, I think the impact on the economy is going to be pretty modest. Uh, the banking system uh, accounts for a relatively small share of total financial intermediation activity in the United States, unlike other countries where the banking system is more important. And these few regional banks that are really under stress only represent a few percentage points of the U.S. banking system. And the problem is not a credit problem. It's not a question of the banks having bad credit. The problem is that they have lots of uninsured depositors and they have losses on their long uh, asset holding, long, long dated asset holding. So I think this is I think this is manageable if the Fed can just calm things down. How high do you think the Federal Reserve, if that case that you're providing there that a couple of weeks and this all calms down, how high do you think interest rates could get? Because go back two weeks, we were sort of complaining in a way that the uh, U.S. economy had been too resilient to, to rate hikes and that terminal rates could be 6%. Do we get back there? Well, I mean, obviously, given this banking turmoil, it's going to it's going to have some impact on growth. So you certainly would think that the peak, if you thought the peak was six percent earlier, maybe now the peak is you know five and a half. I do think where I would disagree where the markets are right now is pricing all this cut uh, interest rate reductions in the second half of the year and into 2024. I don't really see the basis for the Fed to be cutting interest rates. I think the economy is still very strong. Labor market is still very tight, and as long as this banking uh, crisis is sort of contained then I think the impact on the economy is going to be relatively minor. Uh, we're going to see growth in the first quarter of around 2.5%. Uh, this is very different than the great financial crisis. We went into recession during the great financial crisis. People forget this. December 2007, many, many months before Lehman weekend. Yeah, I mean, and the feeling there was um, a question of what lies beneath. There was a complete lack of trust between banks, I think, in the system, there was a belief that we'd get through it somehow. And so we, we were far slower, particularly given what we've seen in the last week, I think, for comparison, too. So the reaction speed is, is far quicker in this case, too. Um, Bill, is there a what lies beneath? I mean, you could always make the point that we don't know what we don't know I mean, until, until it happens. Yeah, I, mean, I think the, 
I think the you know interest rate risk that banks have taken, you know, people banks that have stretched for yield by buying more long dated treasuries and agency mortgage backed securities, that's what happened to Silicon Valley Bank. That's really well known. That's that's very evident. Mm-hmm. I think the the problem where, where we don't have very good visibility is on uh, commercial uh, lending in uh, f- for office buildings and things like that. I mean, if I had to worry about one particular sector of the lending, I would be worried about people about banks that are have a, a big commercial office building uh, exposure because that's the that's the, that's the area that was really is really going to be upended by what's happened uh, during the COVID pandemic. I mean, people are working more from home. Office building space is now abundant, and that's going to have some consequences for valuation of uh, commercial uh, office buildings. Okay, so that's one area to watch. I think the other thing, and it's sort of a hindsight's perfect site, but you know, we're still having this battle, and we had it with Silicon Valley Bank, where there are facilities at the Federal Reserve where these banks can access liquidity. And I just wonder whether there's a way to sort of flip that. And and you and I have had a discussion separately and on air, and I want you to say it on air because I think it's important, where you, you sort of make rather than individuals have insurance or uninsured deposits, you actually make the banks buy insurance or invest in insurance so that well, they can always that access you, that liquidity. Yeah. Well, one thing you would like to do is reassure people uh, on an ex-ante basis before the, the stress hits rather than ex-post after everything uh, you know, breaks, starts to break apart. Because obviously, you know, once Silicon Valley Bank went down, that created a lot more anxiety about a bunch of other banks. Far better to have a you know a very you know credible liquidity backstop in place that's available on an ex ante basis that Silicon Valley can access so they don't fail in the first place. Uh, if they don't fail, then the contagion you know to other banks is you know minimal, and you can life can go on. One thing you could potentially do is basically force banks to buy uh, liquidity insurance, explicit liquidity insurance from the Fed. That would uh, avoid the, the moral hazard problem of giving them something for free. They'd have to pay for it. And once they bought it, then everyone would know that they have the ability to go to the Fed uh, and obtain uh, funding, you know, uh, according to what they purchased. I mean, one of the problems that the Fed has is the discount window, which is the Fed's lender of last resort facility, uh, is stigmatized. Banks don't like to use it because they view that this is something that makes them look weak. So I think that the challenge here is to build a facility that people think is perfectly reasonable to use because I, I paid for it. Yeah. And then you don't have the moral hazard problem of this blanket coverage for uninsured deposits, which could incentivize bad behavior um, at the banks and moral hazard. The banks already have it, so they're less likely to be tested by um, deposit withdrawals. So to your point, it sort of solves the problem before it's happened, perhaps. Um, I'm going to ask. It's also more fair. Yeah, right. It's also more fair. fair. I mean, right now, these decisions are made on an ex post basis, on a case by case basis. So why is one bank's insured deposits protected, but not another's? That doesn't seem very fair. I couldn't agree more. I'm going to circle back to the first question I asked you, but ask it in a different way to see if you give me a different answer. And that is, um, what would it take, do you think, to sort of effectively bang Congress's and politicians' heads together to decide that, okay, even if it's just for a short period of time, six months, one year, that we need a blanket um, sort of protection, even for uninsured deposits. What does it take, do you think, in terms of instability? Well, I think, we, I need, I think you need quite a bit more than what we've had to date. I mean, you know, you could argue that in protecting all deposits, you know, is, is has some 
you know, better attributes. Uh, one, you're, you're, everyone knows you're protected, so you don't have to run in the first place. And number two, it's it's fair. You're not discriminating against one bank versus another. But if you truly have uninsured deposits, then you need much tougher regulation because if ba any bank can obtain an unlimited amount of uninsured deposits uh, that are now insured, uh, banks can get up to mischief. You know, we saw that during the SNL crisis. Uh, you know, SNL basically started making big bets. So if you're going to do that, you, you need to put uh, limits on how fast banks can grow or you need to put limits on banks' concentration. You need to pay a lot more attention to what bankers are doing if they have unlimited access to deposits. Yeah. It's tough, isn't it? You try so, and solve one problem there, and you end up... There is no free lunch. No. <laughs> there is Nor no should free there lunch. be. Nor should there be. Yes. Um, great to chat to you. So thank you so much for your wisdom. Bill Dudley there, former president of the New York Federal Reserve. Always a pleasure. Thank you. All right, coming up here on First Move, flexing diplomatic muscle. What Xi Jinping's visit to Moscow really means for the war in Ukraine. That's next. Welcome back to First Move and an action-packed day already filled with important monetary policy and superpower meetings. The wait for possible Trump indictment proceedings and financial market bank stabilization greetings, fingers crossed. On Wall Street for now, calmer feelings. Your stocks are up for a second day after Monday's across-the-board rise. All this amid hopes that big banks will do more to help stabilize the regional bank First Republic. We've also had Treasury Secretary Yellen. She's going to be saying later on today in a speech that the U.S. will do more if needed to guarantee bank deposits too. It's as close as you get, I think, to an implicit, explicit, explicit promise. First Republic outperforming all the regional banks in early trade today after losing almost half of its value on Monday. The company's shares down some 90 percent, 9-0 already this year amid concerns of depositor flight following the collapse of the Silicon Valley Bank. Now, back to our top story and a powerful show of support. Chinese leader Xi Jinping meeting with Russian President Vladimir Putin in Moscow. This is the second day of his three-day state visit. It follows four hours of talks on Monday. Between the two leaders, Putin said Russia carefully studied China's peace proposal for the conflict in Ukraine. It's only being called a peace proposal, of course, by the Chinese, not the rest of the world. Michael Hessen joins us now. He's the head of China Research at 22V Research. Michael, fantastic to have you with us. Um, high visibility, it seems, but you're not expecting any real and concrete outcomes from this. Explain. Well, I think the reason we're not going to see any concrete outcomes is because Xi Jinping's goal here is to present China as being a constructive agent in this conflict, but stopping well short of any expectations that China is going to broker a deal or really to pressure Russia, which is essentially what it would take, I think, to really de-escalate the conflict. So we're seeing something of a holding pattern here um, that I think is not really going to make a difference, at, certainly in the short term, in terms of how this conflict is playing out. How much of this is also about Xi Jinping and Beijing showing that it, it won't be in some way cowed or influenced by US, EU, UK demands, whether that's tackling Russia with regards to the war in Ukraine or anything else? I think there's a significant part of that. Xi Jinping's uh, message to his domestic audience is that the country and the party need to rally around him in order to fight off Western containment of China. And he used those words directly against the U.S. at the National People's Congress 
um, earlier this month. And of course, that is part of Beijing's narrative about this conflict in Russia. It's that it is being fomented by the West um, in a way that makes Russia insecure. So there is certainly an aspect of this standing up to the U.S. that helps with China's relationship with Russia, um, but also is an important message to the domestic audience as well. The suggestion is, and and they've said it, that that Putin has studied the 12-point plan that China provided. It it sort of confuses me because the first point on that was that the nations respect each other's sovereignty. So one could argue the plan itself um, immediately falls down at the first point if Russia remains in in Ukraine in this way. But you also think it's very unlikely that that she crosses the de facto red line that NATO has presented in the provision of weapons to Russia unless his future depends on it. Just give us that calibration and your thinking on this. Sure. So China's fundamental interest, of course, always is going to be domestic, domestic stability. And I don't think it's going to take risks unnecessarily that would have any kind of threat to domestic stability. Moving over that red line would be a potential risk. It would mean potentially quite aggressive sanctions against China from the U.S., Uh, and the EU. However, number two in that hierarchy of how Beijing is thinking about this conflict is Russia's stability. I think that the real bottom line after domestic stability is that Moscow can't fail in this conflict from Beijing's perspective. That doesn't mean that Putin needs to win, but he can't fail in a way that would be calamitous for him because the risk for China, if he does fail, is potential instability in Russia and also just the sense that China has failed to some extent as a partner for Russia. So I think the bottom line is at this point, I don't think we're seeing a sense of urgency from China that Putin is so close to failing in this conflict that it would lead them to take risks for domestic stability. So I think it is that finely calibrated line of providing economic and diplomatic support to Russia, but not crossing that red line in terms of lethal assistance. What do you expect in terms of talk, if anything, on a ceasefire? If you if you bear all of that in mind that you just said, this this um, sort of calibration between not wanting to lose or risk the loss of, of a powerful ally, particularly given the deterioration in relations with the West. The United States is afraid that talk of a ceasefire is, is simply that, a, a message to other nations that perhaps would like to see an end to this and are sympathetic to the idea of an end, but really it's just buying what they're calling political cover for Russia to perhaps consolidate its position and then press on. I think that's exactly right. China would like to see a ceasefire. That's part of their proposal. Their argument is you can't have negotiations unless you first have the conditions to de-escalate. Of course, the US and the Europeans view that as an argument that just serves Russia's interests by kind of entrenching uh, Russia's gains in this conflict. So I think in practical terms, it's going to be a non-starter. And that's, I think, one reason why this proposal, and we'll have to see what China comes out with coming out of this meeting, is unlikely to go very far. Do you think the situation can be improved, Michael? And I'm not talking about the Ukraine war now. I'm talking about the deterioration in tone, in relationship between the United States and China. Because one could argue that mistakes, missteps, um, cultural misunderstandings have taken place on both sides. Is there a way around this or is it a case of sort of biding time until the end of, of this administration? We'll see what happens after that. 
Well, I think you're absolutely right. There is just a series of misunderstandings, mm. misunderstandings or miscalculations or really just the two sides interacting with each other in a very, uh, I think you could Hostile. say, vicious cycle. I don't see any signs that this is headed for improvement. I think the Ukraine conflict has worsened the dynamic between the two countries. And I think U.S.-China tensions have worsened the ability to cooperate over Ukraine. I think the best we can hope for is to try to at least stabilize and not have a more serious crisis. And I think one thing we should be watching for is, do President Biden and President Xi speak now that Xi has made his trip to Russia and now that the National People's Congress is over? I hope we see that because I think it would be a sign that at least the channels are there to avoid uh, you know, worse spillovers from the state of tensions right now. I just want to show our viewers the imagery again from earlier with the the sort of walk between the two presidents and that meeting moment in the centre, the, the pomp, the power, in many ways, the isolation too. Um, how important do you think this meeting is and what comes from this meeting, at least in terms of diplomacy for, for the Europeans? I just, Emmanuel Macron comes to mind and the protests that we've seen in Paris as a result of the decisions he took um, to make changes with uh, the age of, of retirement He's burnt political capital domestically. I just wonder whether there's anything that can take place here that perhaps in some way softens the minds of some of the Europeans. I think that is part of Xi Jinping's calculation here. I think, you know, the European leaders generally view this trip with a lot of cynicism. They're very frustrated with China. They don't believe Beijing fully understands how serious this conflict is for Europe. But from Beijing's perspective, they're seeing some of the strains in Europe right now, socially, economically. And I think part of this trip is to say, look, China's not going to deliver a peace agreement, but we are part of this dynamic. We're, we're a part of an eventual solution. And the reason why that's helpful to China is that they want to prevent Europe from a strong relationship with the US encountering China. And so to show that China might be a constructive actor at some point down the road, even on Ukraine, is a way of dissuading European leaders from taking very aggressive actions towards China, for example, on Taiwan or technology controls or other areas in which Washington is trying to strengthen the, the US-E relationship. So there is clearly an element here that uh, that Beijing is targeting uh, you know, at Europe. Well, once again, we're showing these pictures and it's, it's quite fascinating how um, sort of diminutive, I'll use that word, President Putin looks Next to President Xi, uh, President Xi seemed far more relaxed than President Putin, which I guess one could imagine, given the relative size of the economies, the situation that, that President Putin finds him in and the importance, I think, of the show of support from, from President Xi. Um, Michael, President Xi's not unaware of the leverage he has globally over Russia at this moment. Um, could there be a point where actually... President Putin no longer is useful to him. In fact, he becomes um, simply an irritation. I think it's unlikely because of how important the China-Russia relationship is. The two countries, obviously, they share a border. They share a very important economic relationship and security relationship. So if Putin were to fail, for example, it would be deeply, deeply disturbing uh, for China. So I think that, you know, Beijing, some 
some experts in Beijing, some policy advisors have a bit of buyer's remorse here in terms of how China has signaled its support for Russia in this conflict. But I think from Xi Jinping's perspective, the relationship with Putin is going to stay quite important. And I don't think he's going to take any real risks with that. It will continue to be a very important relationship for him. Yeah, it's interesting. I was trying to separate um, Putin and Russia there, um, but you didn't. And I think that's uh, perhaps quite right. Michael, thank you so much for that. Michael Hasten, the head of China Research at 22V Research. Great to have you with us. OK, coming up after the break, time for Trump watch. The former president says he expects to be indicted, but when that could happen remains unclear. We have the latest next. Welcome back to First Move. Police barricades are going up around Manhattan District Court in New York and in Washington, too, ahead of a possible indictment of former President Donald Trump. Law enforcement officials say Tuesday is a, quote, high alert day, but currently there's no credible threat. The former president is bracing for charges of falsifying business records. It's related to hush money payments made by a former fixer, Michael Cohen, to adult film star Stormy Daniels. Paula Reid is on the case for us. Paula, great to have you with us. I have a few questions. Um, how is how, how likely is an indictment in the first place? How likely is an indictment today? And even if he is indicted, what happens then? So at this point, we don't know the strength of the evidence that's gone before this grand jury. But we do know the prosecutors have made some moves that strongly suggest they are moving to indict former President Trump, including offering him an invitation to come and testify before the grand jury. They also granted a defense request to put a witness in front of the grand jury. A grand jury, that's prosecutors control that show. But they granted this defense uh, request to put a witness in front of the grand jurors to attack Michael Cohen's credibility. Again, these are things that are only typically done when you are planning to indict a defendant. What we also don't know right now, though, is if the grand jury is going to hear from any more witnesses and when, if ever, they will vote uh, to indict. If the former president is indicted, the way that process works is that the indictment is filed under seal. Defense attorneys are notified that there has been an indictment, but not necessarily the charges that have been filed. And then you negotiate an initial appearance and a self-surrender. I've spoken to sources on the former president's legal team who tell me he would surrender if he is charged. And that at this point, they don't expect that any sort of initial appearance would happen until at least next week. So right now we're waiting and we're watching. The big question is, is the grand jury done? And we just don't know. Yeah, I mean, there's so many unknowns here that the reason why we're even talking about this, of course, just to remind our viewers is because President Trump himself suggested that he was set to be indicted today. And that sort of whipped up um, a yes. storm of all kinds um, around this. Just to be clear, let's assume he is indicted. And as you said, it might take around a week for that to be organized and then for him to surrender. What does that process involve? This is really unprecedented here, right? Because mm. we're dealing with a former leader of the free world. This is someone who has secret service protection. And the courthouse that we're talking about, even when they have other high-profile defendants, I mean, this is a pretty chaotic building. Uh, security uh, concerns there are, are just going to be enormous. We know that law enforcement officials have been meeting this week to talk about this possible scenario. And it's just unclear how they would treat him, because even though procedurally he's supposed to be treated the same as all the other defendants, when it comes to just the security of bringing him into that building, 
it's going to have to be something different. I mean, he just has protections that other people don't have. But I'm told that he wants to appear in person. He does not want to even attempt to request a remote hearing or anything like that. So it'll be really interesting. And as you noted, he had predicted that he would be arrested uh, today, I believe. But his own team came out and said he had no evidence to back that up. And he was using that speculation about an arrest to call for his supporters to protest. And he was also fundraising uh, on his social media platform as well. So he believes this will help him politically. Yes, this has been a show about visuals. And um, this story certainly um, is first and foremost, I think, in that regard. Paula Reed, thank you so much. Okay, coming up on First Move. A powerful performance at one of London's most storied venues. An emotional concert dedicated to Ukraine. Next. Welcome back to First Move. A group of Ukrainian women have a powerful note for their country and the world. While their loved ones endure the horrors of war, they're starting new lives in the UK and beginning with a musical message of support. A performance at London's Royal Opera House. Issa Suarez has their story. Why my land, they sing. Each word a haunting loss that fills the room with pain and longing. For this group of around 130 Ukrainians, mostly amateur singers, this performance at the Royal Opera House in London is deeply personal. It has taken over two months of rehearsals and hours of fine-tuning to get to this point. For members like Olga, who was forced to flee from her hometown of Irpin after Russia's invasion, this is an opportunity to be part of a new community in a new country. It's huge support for me. It's huge, huge support and feeling that I'm not alone and that I, I united with people, with the different people, we are together. These songs now offering a connection to home and a reminder of the many lives lost. More than 360 Ukrainians apply to be part of this project for what originally supposed to be just 45 spaces. I think it's that sort of sense of coming together as only music making can is bringing out a lot of emotion. Those selected to perform were from all age groups, but mostly women. Men more likely to stay behind and fight on the front lines. Natalia's husband is one of them. She tells me he's currently fighting in Bakhmut one of Ukraine's fiercest battlegrounds. Words of love that leave Natalia shaken and longing to be home. Suarez, CNN, London. 
singing the show out. That's it for us today. Thank you for joining us. Connect the World is up next. I'll see you tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.